Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Just one more thing, grief growers. Do you ever feel trapped, stuck, or silenced in the aftermath of loss? Are you struggling to figure out who you are now or what your life is made of now that death, divorce, or diagnosis has steamrolled through? Whether you're trying to cultivate deeper self-compassion, figure out where grief belongs in your life now, or simply feel like you have more room to breathe, the three words that your heart needs to hear are permission to grieve. Permission to Grieve is the title of my latest book, a tribute to the three little words that changed how I saw myself and my grief after the death of my mom. I know it has the power to change how you see yourself and your grief in whatever loss you're facing. You can find Permission to Grieve now on Amazon. Give yourself more grace, space, and room to breathe in the aftermath of loss, because we could all use a little more Permission to Grieve. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm speaking with Alua Arthur, a technicolor death doula who's on a mission to bring grace, consciousness, and much-needed information to the experience of death and dying. Also this week, I'm talking about why having permission to grieve is so important, and sharing another piece of my new book, permission to grieve. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to help others find direction, get support, and cultivate radical self-compassion in the aftermath of loss because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Just a quick reminder that if you'd like grief support and conversation beyond this podcast, I'm hosting my next live grief support session Monday, October 28th at 8 p.m. Central Time. I literally carve out a corner of the internet in our very own live chat room on YouTube for you to bring your pains, your struggles, and your loved ones to share and discuss with us. Just two days ago this past Monday, we talked about the grief of having unfinished business with someone who died, how our friends will never get to know our before selves before our loss occurred, and why family and friends often infantilize us as grievers and what we can do about it. We always go in so many unexpected but helpful directions in these live chats, so I hope that you'll join me and so many other listeners of this show for live grief support on October 28th. All you have to do to join the call is pledge to support this podcast at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Literally any amount that you'd like to pledge will unlock the link to join us live, 
And if you can't make the actual session, whether you're in a different time zone or you're busy that night, you can absolutely watch the replay, which I post for all patrons to see and comment on the very, very next day. You can find the link where you can pledge and join us for live grief support in the show notes. Alrighty, so this week for the top of the show, I want to share another excerpt from my book, Permission to Grieve. And I also want to talk about the why behind it. I run in a lot of different entrepreneurial and coaching and guiding circles because of the work that I do. And so many conversations in those spaces revolve around why. Why choose this path? Why try something new? Why head in this direction as opposed to another one? So in writing Permission to Grieve, I knew on some level that I needed to make a case for why shifting to permission granting from the societal traditions of life rejection and self-abandonment was so important. The rules about dealing with grief and loss that were taught by the world, so things like keep calm and carry on, be strong for others, get busy, just give it time, time heals all. These things are so, so ingrained in us. And to even think about doing things any differently can be really scary, if not downright foreign to our brains. So building up why permission to grieve is so important can help ease us into this place of at least being willing to give it a try. It kind of gives permission to grieve some proof or some backing or even some foundation, if you will. So check out this excerpt from Permission to Grieve about why permission to grieve is so vitally important in the process of coming back. The importance of permission. Having permission to grieve is vitally important, not because we need a hall pass to get away with shit in the aftermath of loss, but because grief is so inherently stymied with garbage rules that don't really help us heal. Giving ourselves permission to grieve requires us to ask ourselves how we would like to take on grief and also removes the blocks that prevent that from happening. To me and to so many others, that is true healing. Permission to grieve is an examination and rejection of the old story and then a conscious replacement of the old story with a new one, one we've penned ourselves. Why do we need permission to grieve? One, permission to grieve gives us room to breathe. Now, I didn't intend for this to rhyme, but it totally did, making it easy to remember. Permission to grieve gives us room to breathe. Simply put, permission is the key that unlocks the door that's been holding us trapped, muzzled, and stifled in our grief. Permission is the opposite of rejection. Permission is the opposite of abandonment. Permission lifts the weight, eases the pressure, and loosens the reins. It doesn't matter if the story we've been telling ourselves is society's or our own. What matters is our recognition of it and our releasing from it. We're giving ourselves permission to feel, be, and do something different than what we used to believe we had to feel, be, and do. Permission is telling the real truth about what's going on inside our grief experience, and that gives us massive room to breathe. Two. Permission to grieve reminds us that we are doing this for the first time and that we aren't crazy. So much of what we believe about grief and loss is mired in fear. Fear of not doing it right, fear of not being normal, and fear of being or looking crazy. Permission to grieve helps us view ourselves and our situations through a softer, more compassionate lens. 
removing the pressure to live up to impossible, inhuman, and unrealistic expectations of how we should be after loss and allowing ourselves to be exactly who we are. When we're grieving a loss, even if it isn't our first loss, the emotions and circumstances are new to us. Permission to grieve gives us the vocabulary to say to ourselves, hey, ease up. It's okay. You're facing this for the first time. You're not crazy. You're just grieving. Harsh criticisms and expectations shrink away in the presence of self-assurance and non-judgment. With permission to grieve, we stop yelling at ourselves to be stronger or different or better in our pain and shift to witnessing ourselves instead. 3. Permission to grieve bleeds into other elements of our lives and fosters greater empathy for the experiences of others. Especially if your loss is fresh, other people may not be your first priority in grief. For the most part, grief is a very personal experience revolving around your relationship with who or what you lost. Society might use the word selfish, but I can think of a few other words to classify the intimate focus of grief. All-consuming, life-changing, and heart-centered come to mind. But the neat thing about permission to grieve is that once you give it to yourself, you can give it to others too. For more on how to give others permission to grieve, see part three in the back of this book. Freeing yourself from old stories, expectations, and myths about grief unconsciously frees others too and gives you greater insight into the stories, expectations, and myths they might still be operating by. You stop supporting a story that asks people to reject their lives and abandon themselves and that makes for a more compassionate world. If you'd like to give yourself more room to breathe, the grace and knowledge that you're doing grief for the very first time, and the ability to create a more empathetic and compassionate world, you need to be giving yourself permission to grieve. So much of coming back from grief and loss is about deciding what we value, and then taking steps to make that happen or manifest in our real life. So if you value creating that loving space for yourself of permission and space to breathe and just room in your life, or if you're looking for ways to create those things for others in the aftermath of loss, I so, so encourage you to pick up a copy of Permission to Grieve right now on Amazon. As of this moment, it is available in both ebook and paperback formats, and the audiobook, which you heard a snippet from here on this episode, is currently in review with audible.com to be published as an audiobook. And I will, of course, let you know when that's released to Grief Growers. You can find a link to buy Permission to Grieve in the show notes. Up next, my interview with kind soul and death doula, Elua Arthur, who's bringing grace to the experience of dying. Grief is setting sail, twice, on the 2020 Bereavement Cruises. To join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart-healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea, request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruise's organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Elua Arthur is a death doula, attorney, and the founder of Going With Grace, 
an end-of-life planning organization that exists to support people as they answer the question, what must I do to be at peace with myself so that I may live presently and die peacefully? From private end-of-life consultations and public education about death to online coursework to train death doulas, Alua is tirelessly committed to bringing awareness to death and dying. She passionately believes considering death can inspire the way people live. A jewelry addict, Alua is also a life lover, donut fanatic, and developing nation enthusiast. She is inspired by life, all capital letters there, the little joys we can find even in dark times, the freedom of authenticity, and the power in the word yes. Just a quick heads up, grief growers, that there is a siren in the background in the first two minutes of our conversation. Eloa, I am so delighted to have you here on Coming Back because I heard your voice on another podcast and thought that your perspectives on death, dying, and just thinking of the end would be so useful for listeners of Coming Back. So if you could please start off by sharing your loss story or experience with loss with us. Sure. Um, My loss story is multi-layered. Initially, I was experiencing the loss of identity in that I had been practicing law for about nine years, 10 years, and it wasn't quite working. And so I was deep in a redefinition of self. So I was experiencing a loss of that professional background and identity and try to figure out what was next. Through that journey, I found death work somehow. I met a woman on a bus in Cuba that had uterine cancer, and we started chatting about her life, and we also talked a lot about her death. And the conversation about her death helped me see what a, what a big gap exists in the support that people have that are looking at the end of their lives. From there, I fully immersed myself in how we prepare ourselves for dying. And shortly, I had the opportunity to be close to it myself when my brother-in-law, who was 43 years old, was diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma. And about four months later, we learned that there wasn't too much more that could be done to treat him. And so I packed up my bags and moved in with him and my sister and my niece. And a few months later, he died. So I love this idea of, I have, I just have this visual of you sitting next to this woman on a bus in Cuba with uterine cancer and just being able to hold space for her. And that's a term that's getting tossed around a lot these days is, are you capable of holding space? Are you capable of sharing space? Um, and I wonder how you came to know that as one of your gifts, or was it something that somebody pointed out to you? That's a really good question. You know, I actually don't know if I consider it a gift. I think it's more a practice and something that I'm actively practicing, especially since this is my life's work now. And so I'm constantly in practice about that. I'd say my gifts are more around being comfortable in emotional depth and meeting people where they are and trying and making sure that I'm actively, I guess, holding space for them where they are rather than them needing to be anyplace else. Oh, I think that's a great jumping off point because I think a lot of people avoid, resist, prolong getting help as they're walking up to the end of life or as someone they love is walking up to the end of life because they want to maintain this facade of having everything all together or holding it together or having their shit together or however people tend to phrase it. Um, And one of the things that comes up a lot on this show is get help and get the guidance sooner rather than later. And 
I feel like you get more of the human experience that way. But how do you teach people to set aside like the ego or this desire to look like you have it all together in favor of getting the guidance towards death that you actually need? You know, I find that when people are getting pretty close to the end of life, ego, egos drop or at least they diminish. And so a lot of people that come to me, at least when it's become clear from a medical standpoint that there's nothing left to do, if they're not just praying for a miracle, they are saying, okay, uh, we've done everything that we can, what else is there left to do? And so in that space, it's, it's ripe for it's right for that kind of conversation. When I'm working with people that are still healthy, that have decided to do some end of life planning, they have already come to some understanding that you know, we're not all, we're not immortal. And that at some point they're going to have to really have to look at the end of their lives in some meaningful capacity and have chosen to do it while they're still healthy. So that doesn't show up too much there. Um, the place where I'd say perhaps that does come into place is with the family members or the circle of support, people that are still praying, hoping, and wishing that things were different than they currently are, people that haven't yet adapted to the reality that somebody that they love is going to die from whatever it is that's currently ailing them. Do you consider it part of your job or part of your presence to, the word I'm looking for is not confront, but um, to assert that reality that dying is actively happening? Or I guess, how do you guide people into coming to that conclusion? Because that's a really hard I mean, death is a hard reality to sit with, especially if you've never really stared it straight in the face before. Yeah, it is a tough, jagged pill to swallow. I'd say similarly to when we were talking about holding space earlier, you know, what I really do is just hold people where they are. So I don't really find it to be my job to get somebody into some recognition that their lives are ending. But more often than not, when they've called a death doula, they know that something's coming down the pike. And so we have opportunities to talk about it. I can think of one client in particular that I worked with who was in his mid-90s. So he was an elderly fella, and he was on hospice with the diagnosis of failure to thrive. So there wasn't anything specifically that was wrong or some disease in particular, but rather just his body was, was getting old. And in our conversations, he felt or he seemed to be resistant to the fact that he was dying, yet his daughters were preparing for that eventuality. He was already on hospice. His daughters called me in. We had a nice long talk, he and I, and he said, well, if I admit it, if I admit it, that might mean that my daughters then have to start grieving and I don't want them to start grieving while we're still, while I'm still alive. I want them to just enjoy our time together until I die and then they can begin to grieve. I thought that was really insightful and also um, very, you know, almost like a loving fatherly thing to do. Oh, I don't want them to feel any pain right now. Let's, let's wait until later for the pain uh, when it's appropriate. But that was one case where, you know, it seemed as though he was resistant to his dying but he was more resistant to the idea of his daughter's feeling pain. Does that make any sense? It does. And it's really resonant of this idea that I see a lot in parents of, I want my last action to be protecting my children in some way or protecting the emotional state of my children or protecting them from pain. Because even when they are 
the dying person. It's like, they're still acting with this. I'm looking outside of myself and I'm still acting in a parental role. It's like the one thing most parents know to do is to protect their children from any kind of harm. And even if that harm is the fact that they themselves are dying. And so, I mean, my brain is really wrapping around that idea, especially because listeners of this podcast will know that my biggest loss was my mom. And so for her to withhold a lot of information from us, frankly, and then leading up to the final day, she kind of narrated what was happening, but still kept a lot of things, especially her own pain in secret. And I, we didn't find out until later. Um, there is a gift in that. And then there's also a, a wondering of, did I get the true experience of their death? Did I ever really see what she was like while she was dying? Or was she doing something on my behalf? And I'll never really know. Um, and that's it's just fascinating to think about. I think you're correct that that's really insightful. And the question that I wrote down as you were speaking is, can grief ever really be prolonged? Mm-hmm. Well, I know for sure it can get really complicated and go on for a long time that way. Um, but I think that since grief is something that we all learn to live with, it's, I don't think it gets prolonged in any real way because it just is, you know? Even with the man that I discussed earlier, his daughters were already anticipatorily grieving his death. And so they were already feeling the pain, even though he wasn't yet dead. They knew what was coming down the pike. He was 96. Um, and he knew what was coming down the pike, just nobody was talking about it. And I think after he died, which was not long after we had that initial meeting, they then were faced with their grief, grief over his death, and will experience it in different forms until they die, right? You know, we just all learn to live with the loss one way or another. It doesn't ever really go away. It just kind of changes shape or the, it's like a pair of jeans that gets really comfortable to put on. I love that metaphor because I use so many on the show here of like, whether it's outgrowing things and then you find out they fit later, or I love this, the jeans that get more and more comfortable to put on as you get older. Um, How do you help people normalize grief and those emotions and experiences in their lives? Because I think especially for a lot of, this is my first big death, there's this thing of, and I'm not supposed to be feeling this way. There's a major pushback towards the experience of grief. Majorly, majorly. The best tool that I have is to name it and to say, and this is perfectly normal. I have yet to see anybody in a response or reaction to death or dying that is abnormal. You know, I mean, the human, the spectrum of human emotion is so vast and people laugh at inappropriate times. I'm like, yep, that looks like grief. You're sobbing uncontrollably. Yeah, it looks like grief. I talked to a young woman yesterday that I've been working with for about six months whose fiance just died and she's angry. She was so angry yesterday and she thought this can't be normal, right? But she actually said that. And I said, it's actually perfectly normal just by naming it and saying, yep, looks about right. I think can be really, really useful. I love that. And I hope that grief growers who are listening kind of had the same reaction that I did where my shoulders dropped. And it's like, it's almost like this idea of, of course, like that's normal. And to, for you to say, and having seen as many deaths and grieving people as you've seen, I've never seen anything abnormal. That's really, really powerful to say, because that scope is huge. There's a lot of I think we fail to give grief the room that it already takes up. 
Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I will also say that when I don't know how to deal with something, I always refer to the grief counselors in my network to say, I'm just checking in. What do you think? And they'll either ask me to send the person to them or they'll give me some tools to work with. But yes, I, I haven't yet to see anything abnormal. I wonder how did you go from being someone companioning this woman on a bus in Cuba to moving in with your brother-in-law and his family as he was dying to someone who seeks others and is sought out as a companion witness of, not necessarily expert on, the process of dying? Oh, my goodness. It was, it's been quite a journey. It's been quite a journey. When the realization kind of dawned on me on the bus in Cuba, I came back to the States really full of purpose. It's the only way I can describe it. I was just rip-roaring, ready to go. And so I threw myself into as many different practice areas as I could. And I applied also to a, a master's program and a few PhD programs in death and spirituality. I thought I was going to become a therapist, a clinical psychologist. And so I thought, this is it. Um, needless to say, that's not the route that I went because it was not feeling like a full body yes in my spirit, much like the decision to work with people that were dying was. And so I sat on it and I waited and I waited. And then when my brother-in-law got sick and I walked him through that, I said, oh, I see where all the, the opportunities are now, the opportunities to support people in a more holistic way. And let's find a way to do this thing. Like, where are the people Where's a person who is knowledgeable and compassionate and kind, you know, who really understands what it is that we're going through, who just can tell me the answer to this question. Let's make it easy. Let's make it simple. And didn't find anybody. And so uh, decided to become that person. And again, sought out everybody. I took a job at a hospice. I volunteered at other hospices. I got a financial planning license so I could understand life insurance. I sought out estate planners, estate planning attorneys, so I could understand wills and trusts and probate. I worked with an alternative funeral home here in uh, Los Angeles. I just wanted to learn as much as I could about the kind of support for people that are going through this process now. And then put all those things together along with a death midwife training I did here in LA. And I um, hung out a shingle and I said, all right, I'm ready. I'm learning and I'm ready. People come to me. Nobody came. Nobody came for quite some time. And I thought, well, what am I doing wrong? What else do I need to know? Um, and so kept studying, kept studying, kept interning, kept kept paying attention to the needs that were out there, tried to understand what people were coming to me for, what they were really lacking. And I saw that people needed a lot of support in the bureaucratic mess after somebody dies. And so I started being of service there and then recognized that as people came to me uh, for the bureaucratic help, that there was a lot of information that if we only knew before the death would be so much easier to handle. And so worked with a team to put together a really comprehensive end-of-life planning document, started offering those services. And then that led me directly to the bedside, which is a place where I always thought I wanted to be. But it turned out to be like a full-scale end-of-life planning and preparation service that I began to offer. That goes full-scale. I'm just seeing this huge 
circle in my brain because it's like you start here and then you finish here, but then it keeps looping back into each other over and over again. And it's kind of funny how you think you're going to do one thing and then you end up just totally somewhere else. And then you get back to where you thought you wanted to be and you're like, this is it. But now it looks very different. Yes. Very, very, very different. And realistically, it looks much better than I thought it would when I got started. So there's a win. What can we decide about our own deaths by watching others die? Because so many listeners of this show are either caregivers or witnesses to or just kind of nearby as death happens. And I know not only did I recognize my own mortality when my mom died, I was like, oh my God, this, this shit like really happens. Like some people die, die, <laughs> period. Um, and that was kind of like this huge wave that washed over. But then I was like, then I'm going to die. And all of these thoughts just come crashing through of like, well, now what am I going to do when I die? Because there were things I suppose I saw that she had that I was like, no, I don't want that. And then there were things that she did have. And I was like, okay, I do want that. And where do you start? I mean, do you write it down? Do you start a doc on your computer or wherever? But the question that came to mind is what, what can we decide or what do we have the ability to decide as we watch other people die? A number of things, most of which you just spoke about. The first, I think the most important being, what am I learning from this death about how to do it or how not to do it? Because we learn how to die based on how the people around us have done it. And we learn what works for us and what doesn't. Uh, it's really easy to be uh, critical or have some ideas, judgmental about how somebody's doing it. Yet, if we can allow them the space to do their dying exactly the way that's working for them, and then use that experience to figure out what works for us, that's a huge win. I also say that we certainly learn like the practical things, right? Like what you want for your funeral, how you want to plan things. My suggestion is to write it all down when it's still really fresh. A lot of people come to me shortly after a death and say, I'm ready to plan. I want to get things written down. Let's get things going. And then we'll do some follow-up. And as either grief deepens or lessens or time goes on, they lose the drive. And then it's no longer a priority until it has to become a priority again, probably when they're looking at the end of their lives. I'd say the third and maybe the most important thing about what we can um, use in how other people are dying is a, you also mentioned this, the perspective that this actually happens and that at one point I am also going to die. So not only practically, what do I want to do about that? Not only how is it that I want to die, but also how am I going to adjust my living so that my dying is as me as possible, is as complete as possible. I think that's the most useful um, and an ongoing useful thing. What is when considering my own death, what meaning and what joy am I going to make out of my life right now? One of my favorite books on death and dying is Advice for Dying Corpses by Sally Tisdale. And there's a mm -hmm. passage in there about a man who found out that he was dying. I believe it was cancer, but he had lived a good majority of his life alone out in the woods. I think he had daughters or something along those lines, but he was so attached to the earth that he was like, I don't want painkillers. I'm going to refuse, you know, the comforts that medical death can offer or medical dying. And I'm going to, he, he said it, I'm going to die like an animal. And Sally Tisdale writing this book, she was like, 
I didn't agree with the way that he chose to die, but it was my job to support it. And I wonder if this has ever happened in your world where you're like, I don't agree with the way that you're choosing to die, but acknowledge that it is you and my job is to be here to support it. And then kind of a secondary piece of that is what happens when we don't agree with the way that our loved ones are choosing to die? I think most importantly, we remember that it is their death and that we get to have ours at one point. Hmm. We get to. That it is theirs and when it is our time, we'll do it our way because it is a once in a lifetime experience. Um, you know, we take a lot of input on how we do everything else in life. And I think that our, our dying really should be on our own terms. Yes, there are times when the dying is happening and I'm like, ooh, ugh, ugh, for myself personally. Uh, depends on how significant that ugh is, whether or not I will send them to another death doula or if I just need to learn to put my own feelings, ideas, and judgments on the back burner so I can just be of support. Um, I can't think of anything right now that was so challenging for me that I had to step off, um, at least when it came to how somebody was dying. More, more about my boundaries are more around situations that are just very difficult for me, like dying children. That's, I, I can't really go there. My heart hurts too much. I think that's a really fair boundary to set. And simultaneously, I know that there are listeners of this podcast who have lost children and probably thinking, well, I really didn't want to be there either. <laughs> and like, of course, of course not. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just sitting with that reality for a moment that children also die. Children also die. Children also die. And there really isn't anything on earth that breaks my heart more. Um, gratefully, I've trained quite a few doulas because uh, I have a death doula training course. I've trained quite a few doulas who have a heart for working with children and uh, families facing um, this. And I'm, I'm so grateful for them. And they are quick on my speed dial so I can make sure that the parents and families have some support in the process. I think I want to venture with that note on speed dial to the notion of self-care as it applies to you, because I imagine this work is a lot like, like doctor work or EMT work where your phone could be ringing at any hour of the day or night and you would need to be at a bedside. Maybe I have a misconception of what your work is like, but um, I just have this sense that death happens without a time frame <laughs> or with courtesy to anyone's schedule. So I wonder how do you structure your life or do you structure your life so that there are moments where you feel like you can breathe and be present with just yourself? Yeah, it's been also quite a practice. And I think it's uh, no surprise that we say the practice of self-care because it just keeps getting more and more refined as I get older, as I get deeper into this work, as my role in this work changes. I have a number of doulas that I work with here in Los Angeles. And so if there's too much going on or I just really need some time to retreat, there are other folks that uh, my clients can work with. Um, as it relates to you know, the, the more and more public nature of my work, I am learning to say no a lot more 
<laughs> that's a tough one. And um, also honor my feelings, honor my depth. Um, sometimes I used to conceive of self-care as like drawing a bubble bath and drinking a glass of wine, which is lovely and I thoroughly enjoy it. And for me, it also means making a lot of space for my ugly emotions or the ones that I really struggle with and uh, eating salty, crunchy things all afternoon if I want to or canceling social engagements so I can sit and stare out the window because that's something that sometimes I need to do. Um, looking at my judgments, looking at where I may be painful or difficult for other people, you know, all those things make me a, a better doula. I think they make me maybe a better friend and somebody to be in a relationship with as well, but I think they also make me a better death doula is honoring my whole humanness all the time. I think I have more of a personal question for you, and I'm sure you've thought of this, but that is, how would you like to die? Oh, I think about it all the time. I think about it all the time. So this is my ideal death, okay? Ideally, I am elderly. I'm not quite sure how old yet, and I can't control that anyway. But I've lived a good few years, and I'm, I, I feel pretty good about my contribution so far. I'd like to die around dusk. It's my favorite time of day. I want to watch the sky change and see the colors in the sky. I love sunset. I want to be outside. I love to feel the wind on my skin. Uh, I'd love to have loved ones around, but I don't want people just standing there staring at me, being really worried. Uh, I'd rather there be some gaiety in the air, which I can understand would be challenging, but that would feel best for me. Um, I'd also love to hear some water if possible, like running water, maybe like a creek or a river. I want to die in my own bed. I don't want the machines. I don't want to hear any machines. Mm, I also want to die in full surrender and grace with recognition that I gave this life as much as I possibly could and I also gave the individuals that came into my life as much as I could, and then to be able to surrender. Yeah, I want to have some knowledge that death is coming. Um, I want to prepare for it. And I think that's such a luxury to be able to. Whenever I hear stories of sudden death or death within a crime or gun violence or car accidents or things like that. I just like, I lose my breath for a half a second because I know that there was no knowledge that this was coming. And for as much as death in my own world felt like it was sudden, we got a week, we got a week's notice. And even the older I get and the more I do this type of work, I know that that's a luxury is to know it's coming. And I think the picture you painted is so beautiful. And this notion of going with, with surrender and grace leads into the very obvious question, which is how did you select the title of going with grace for your business, for the work that you do? Because I think cinematically, death is often portrayed as something graceful with people, you know, saying last words and making amends and hugging and all this stuff before a loved ones die. And then in reality, death is so often gruesome or sudden or angry or kind of like dying people can often put up a fight as well. So this 
overarching umbrella notion of going with grace, I guess, how does it define and inform all of the work that you do? I find grace to be one of my core values. Um, And interestingly enough, I have an ex-boyfriend that jokingly called me grace because I'm one of the clutziest people you'll ever meet. Like I trip over my own, (laughs) like just regularly. So uh, grace is one of my personal values. You know, I think of um, individuals and certainly circumstances where no matter what it is that is in front of them, they found a, a through line where they still maintain their core values and, you know, they, they, they still, I'm moving my body in a certain way that none of y'all can see, but it speaks so loudly, um, where we're able to adapt to the circumstances around us um, in surrender and, and feel at peace with the choices that we've made. Um, I, I often think of the word grace when I am certainly walking because I try to remember not to trip, but also particularly when I am around my mother, who's one of the most graceful women I know, um, in not only her language and the way that she moves her body, but also in her adaptability to circumstances. And when it came time to select a name for the work that I was going to be doing, to be very honest with you, I did not think about it at all. I was in a 10-day silent meditation retreat, Vipassana, and uh, one day it popped in there and I said, all right, well, this is it. It makes sense to me. I get it. Uh, A lot of people mistake my name to be Grace and that's fine. It's kind of like a little ha-ha-ha to that ex-boyfriend of mine. Um, But it was a very easy coming together um, to your point that death is often very messy and scary and sad and sometimes angry. Yes, all those things, all of those things. I think there are opportunities for grace within it all. And again, it's not my role to get anybody there, but if I can be it as an opportunity for others to feel held in that graceful space, then that's what I shall do. I love that idea showing up as graceful space because it removes that pressure on the dying person or the people surrounding them to also be graceful. You're like, no, no, I'm, I'll supply the grace. <laughs> you guys can just hang out with me. I'll bring it. And also as I bring it and I tell them that wherever they're experiencing is okay, it creates more grace for them. You know, that's one thing that I keep remembering. Like, let's just give ourselves grace to be human, like as much grace to be human as possible. And that means Sometimes my human is angry. Sometimes my human is not nice. Sometimes my human is frustrating or rallying against something, but I get to give myself grace in my humanness as well. And that means also in my dying. Can you speak more on this idea? Maybe some some takeaways or some how-tos of how we as people who are witnessing others die can be these generators of grace? That's such a tough one. Because let me be frank, when it comes time to, I don't know how I will be when it comes time to like my mother or my father or my sister's death. You know what I mean? Um, As somebody who is, I've, I've witnessed plenty of dying at this point and I've had some people that are close to me die and I surprise myself every single time. So I guess I'd say create a lot of space for grace, not only for self, but for the person who's dying to do it, how they need to do it. Not really a useful practical tip, but it's the best that I can do because it's such a 
individualized experience. Sure. And even to keep it in mind as a word that could apply here, because oftentimes people step into death and they're like, oh, grace isn't present here. And you're like, oh, no, grace is present. Yeah. (laughs) I like how you said that. There's also, I just want to say real quick, I think it's a Rumi poem that says, and sometimes a human being becomes a way for grace to walk in. Oh, that gives me chills. I just got them too. Wow. Yeah. That hit me upside the head when I read it because I'd already named Going With Grace and I was like, oh, this is it. We're going to create just a team of grace workers, like just an army of grace to go out there and just show up in people's hospital rooms and bedrooms and in their difficult, challenging moments to be the grace. It's like the visual that's coming to mind for me. It's like we supply the thing that can't be supplied in an IV. Like it's the thing that you need, 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 but it's not something that can be inserted into you. Do you know what I mean? That is rich, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I love it because it's just such a piece. Death is such a place where grace is lacking. And so to to generate grace to be a supplier, I almost want to say to be a dealer in grace. (laughs) Uh, It it makes me laugh, but also I'm like, wow, there's so much thirst for it and desire for it. And I just think that's so powerful. And I, I mean, this is a perfect moment to transition into where people can find going with grace as well as anything else you'd like to share with us. Sure. Um, you can find me on the internet, goingwithgrace.com very easily. Uh, I'm also currently training death doulas. I'm training people that are interested in finding ways to be with death and dying, which is also on the internet at goingwithgrace.com or goingwithgracecourses.com. I, if you Google me, Elua Arthur, you will find me and you'll see all of my technicolorness on the internet. Um, yeah, that's it. Well, Aloha, this has been such a joy and a journey and an exploration. It's always so many places I never expect to go on this show, and I'm so glad that we get to. So thank you so much for being here and coming back today and for taking the time to share wisdom and grace about the end of life with us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really juicy. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so, so much to Elua Arthur for coming on to talk about how we can bring more grace to the experience of dying, something that I think all of us need, but often don't know how to access. Elua came back by acknowledging the information gap in death care, by holding people where they are, and by making plans for her own death. You can find Elua's work, plus her end-of-life courses on her website, goingwithgrace.com. There's also a wealth of information there, whether you're fresh into grief or looking to plan your own or someone else's death. And of course, you can find that link in the show notes. If you're looking for more grace, space, and room to breathe in the aftermath of loss, purchase a copy of my new book, Permission to Grieve, now on Amazon. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live grief support with me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. Thank you so much this week to Adele and Emily, who are now generously helping me get coming back to more ears and hearts that need to hear it. I so appreciate you. 
If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. Thank you.